it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, July 18th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. Welcome, one and all. Pleased to have you here from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Here on the program, I am your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight, Fox News Channel with Brett Bayer. I'm on that panel around 6.40 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there. You can watch live. You can set your DVR. Here at the program, our website is always the same, easy to remember, GuyBensonShow.com. All the content you could ever want, including the podcast, which is free every single day on demand shortly after the show ends. It's a new broadcast week. We are coming to you from the Tony Snow studio in our nation's capital at Fox News, Washington. And we would like to welcome to the Guy Benson Show family this week, Real Talk 1540, WYCL, our newest affiliate in Youngstown, Ohio. So welcome to you guys. We are so Glad, so thrilled to have you here. Let's tell you about today's lineup. K.T. McFarland, who has worked for, I believe, four presidents, including under President Trump. She will be here coming up later on this hour. Josh Krasauer of Axios and a Fox News radio analyst. He will be here with the very latest on the midterms and the dreadful polling numbers that continue to churn out for President Biden. As he hits new lows in our Fox News polling, we will get you some of those details coming up. We will also welcome Jason Rance, radio host out in our affiliate in Seattle. He's got the latest on this story out of Minneapolis, where a gunman was shooting indiscriminately into people's apartments. There was a woman almost killed. She was in there with her kids. The police showed up. The guy was shooting at the police. They ended up killing him. And now you have some BLM activists and protesters trying to turn him into a victim. And one of the actual victims wanted nothing to do with that narrative. And she made that crystal clear quite loudly when she went outside and confronted the activists. We have that audio and Jason's breakdown and analysis. And then in our final hour, first time on the show, Tom Rinaldi. Longtime ESPN guy, now at Fox Sports. He's debuting a new podcast today about an athlete I had never heard of, a Major League Baseball player back in the 70s who was murdered in the middle of a season. It is an extraordinary and sad and in some ways outrageous tale that even as a sports fan, it's something I had never heard before. Tom Rinaldi will tell that story, and we will have him here to preview all of it a little bit later on in our final hour on today's program. As we get going, I would like to juxtapose a few sound bites from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis with the attitudes and policies of the teachers unions. And I would like to dig deeper into a poll that the teachers union 
of Randy Weingarten, the American Federation of Teachers, one of the biggest unions out there, they commissioned a poll. We briefly touched on this last week, but I have more information here today. They went to one of the top Democrat-aligned pollsters in the country. They paid a lot of money to get a national survey run on education-related issues. And as a little spoiler alert, right, just to tease what's coming, I think Randy Weingarten and her fellow cronies are going to be very upset about what their own poll has discovered. Because it seemed like they were polling to maybe see if they could make some hay and gain some political ground by going head-to-head against Governor DeSantis and some of the issues that he has championed and highlighted. And if that was the goal, it blew up in their faces in spectacular fashion. So just a few days ago, Governor DeSantis was down in Florida speaking to a group called Moms for Liberty, which was founded by some former members of the state's Board of Education. So it was a room filled with mostly younger women with kids, school kids, uh, school kids in the state of Florida. And DeSantis tailored his message to them, and he touched on a whole variety of issues, including his typical stump speech. Of course, he's running for reelection down there. There's lots of speculation that he might have his eyes set on something higher. But for now, he's got to win in November down in the Sunshine State. And there's a few points that he makes in virtually every speech he gives, as he should. There's a lot to boast about in Florida. But he also specified a number of things related to education because that's obviously what this group is about. They want to hear this message. It also dovetails overall with his broader message of liberty and freedom and putting data and the well-being of children over the desires and demands of unions and activists. So for one soundbite, one example, DeSantis was talking about vaccine mandates for children, which are commonplace in a number of locations and jurisdictions around the country, not in Florida, cut 18. Florida, spring of 2021, you know, we did legislatively no COVID vax mandates for school children in the state of Florida. And there will not be as long as I am governor. I can tell you that. Now, what's interesting about that, that's sort of like a little teaser, a little taste. Later on this week, Dr. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins, he's going to join us here on the program. He and another epidemiologist, both doctors, they've co-authored a piece on Barry Weiss's substack, blowing the whistle on a number of public health officials at the FDA and the CDC who are saying their concerns internally about the data being used to make big decisions on things like vaccinating young children, they are saying the data is scant at best. And any dissent, any questioning of the company line or the party line on the politicized science is simply not allowed. It's verboten. So they are talking to these other doctors who have now written this piece that I think is a bombshell. That I think should be the subject of congressional hearings if Republicans win back the House as they're expected to do in November. The Democrats would not conduct these hearings. They don't want to have this conversation. I think the conversation needs to be had. I have been very pro-vaccine from the very beginning. 
I got vaxxed as soon as I could. I encouraged my loved ones to do it and my friends. I also thought, based on the experts we had on this show over and over again, that requiring it, especially for kids, was a mistake, not borne out by the data. And yet that was the recommendation of the federal government and the public health bureaucracy under the Biden administration. We know that that same bureaucracy was taking some of its marching orders from the teachers unions. Bringing it full circle back to Randy Weingarten, who was working the phones and sending emails. And part of the reason that so many kids catastrophically were locked out of classrooms for a year plus, in some cases a year and a half, is because Randy Weingarten and the politics of teachers unions, they didn't want schools reopened quickly. Even though schools were open and thriving all across the world, that science was ignored. And I guess that there is so much arrogance in groups like the American Federation of Teachers and from Randy Weingarten herself, who is extremely powerful and her union has a lot of clout and money in democratic politics. They evidently thought they were untouchable and they could do whatever they want and be selfish and anti-student, anti-child, anti-education, really, fundamentally, and there would be no repercussions for them. Well, they are being disabused of that notion, disabused of that fantasy in real time. And I will get to those polling results here in just a moment. But first, back to the DeSantis soundbites. Again, I think it's useful to just listen to DeSantis and then consider what the powers that be in the Biden administration, the teachers unions have been pushing. So DeSantis said, we're not going to do woke curricula in Florida. Woke math is not a thing. There's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And he said in Florida, they are committed to teaching kids how to get the right answer, not teaching kids race-based indoctrination, for example. Cut 19. We recently had these reviews that the Department of Education was doing in Florida. And these math books, they were doing woke math. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, like two plus two equals four, right? It's not two plus two equals, well, how do you feel about that? Is that an injustice? No, we got to teach the kids to get the right answer. I mean, that's just the end of the day. So we said, we, we, the, the, the Department of Education said, though, okay, these are woke books. Send them back to the publishers, the media. It's like, oh, my God, they're, they're banning books, whatever. No, you, you can buy them if you want, but they're not consistent with state standards. We're going to make sure that our books are. And so, but you know what happened was, those companies, because we're such a big state, they took the woke out and send us back normal math books. Big round of applause for that. And I know a lot of people on the left think that that is wrong, that is evil. I'd push even further. They're like, it's authoritarianism. They're book banning in Florida, and DeSantis, I think, dealt with that quite well right there. And then last but not least, he was talking about keeping classrooms open when it was clearly safe to do so. Places like Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, California, the whole West Coast was terrible on this. They had classrooms shuttered in a totally unjustifiable way based on actual science. Classrooms shuttered for a year and a half, not in Florida, because they actually followed the science. The progressives have this incantation where they worship science, at least as this sort of virtue signaling. But when the 
actual literal science conflicts with other agendas, then they're not so keen on the science anymore. DeSantis addressing that and his decisions in Cut 20. We said set out for the schools. It was from a medical and data perspective was not a difficult decision. I mean, it was very blindingly obvious that this is what needed to be done. You know, now that you see this uh, uh, copy being produced and these things in the media saying like, oh, my God, the devastating effect of school closures. Who could have predicted it would be this bad? Yeah, we predicted it would be bad. And then they avoided it by having schools open. And kids where the schools were open are so much better off, will be grappling with so many fewer issues, developmentally, educationally, emotionally, for years to come because of that leadership from DeSantis and others as well. And then there was this harm inflicted on all these other kids who just had the misfortune of living in very blue areas run by Democrats who pay lip service to science, but then ignore it. So that's the picture. That's the backdrop. We told you last week about this poll from Randy Weingarten's union. They paid a Democratic pollster. Go out and ask the American people in battleground states, so the key states, how they feel about these issues. And Republicans, as I mentioned in a previous show, Republicans now have a one-point lead over Democrats on the question of who would handle education better. Usually through history, this has been a 20, 25-point lead for Democrats. And they've squandered it because their allies, to whom they are beholden in the teachers' union, hurt kids enough for long enough that people noticed. They couldn't avoid it. So Republicans actually have a one-point lead in this poll. But that's only the beginning of it. Listen to this from NBC News, their write-up of the results of this battleground poll. Again, commissioned by the union itself. I like to picture Randy Weingarten getting these results back and leafing through them. Here's the quote from NBC. A major set of red flags in the poll for Democrats and teachers unions was a series of questions that looked like they were ripped from Ron DeSantis's Friday speech on critical race theory and teaching kids about sexuality and gender identity. While the survey didn't mention DeSantis by name, it tested education messages he popularized nationally more so than Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican who won in a Democrat-leaning state last year on a parental rights education platform. One poll question found that voters by a 32-point margin said they were more likely to vote for candidates who believe public schools should focus on teaching less, on teaching race, and more on teaching core subjects. So if there's someone campaigning saying public schools should teach more on actual core subjects and less on race by a 32 point margin, Americans in battleground states say I'm for that person. By 27 points, they said schools should be banned from teaching sexual orientation and gender identity to kids in kindergarten through the third grade, which might sound familiar. The Florida law that was so controversial, popular by a 27 point margin nationally in the battleground states. And by 28 points, these voters said that transgender athletes should be banned from competing in girls' sports. So I know in the bubble of progressive leftism on social media, the orthodoxy, the dogma is the opposite of all of this. And it is ruthlessly enforced. And it's an echo chamber and they all agree with each other and they have no understanding whatsoever 
about what average Americans actually think and believe. DeSantis is on the right side of public opinion on all of this stuff. And the progressive activists from whom a lot of these Democrats take their cues are deep underwater on these questions. And this, again, I'll remind you, is from the poll out of Randy Weingarten's shop and a Democratic pollster. This is a red flashing warning sign for them. Is it a wake up call? Will they change anything? Or will it be more denial and ideology? I suspect the latter. Advantage DeSantis, advantage Republicans who can take advantage of this in a smart way. We are just getting started. A new week on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. And to put an exclamation mark on the points I was making about the teachers unions in the last segment, let me read to you briefly from a really good piece in the Daily Beast written by my bestie, Mary Catherine Hamm. Came out today. Headline, teachers unions are why more parents want school choice. They, meaning the unions, oversaw the biggest destabilization of public schools in a generation. Now teachers unions are blaming everyone else for parents wanting better options. Mary Catherine writes that during the pandemic, parents were also getting an education. She quotes the Los Angeles Times saying this, the pace of the decline in enrollment in the public schools out there has accelerated since the pandemic, a phenomenon officials struggle to explain. She writes, this is laughable. Allow me to explain. Los Angeles and the country's other major liberal urban suburban areas in alliance with teachers unions, perpetrated what the Atlantic recently called the biggest disruption in the history of American education. Parents understood who was responsible. When major teachers unions and public schools acted like public education was non-essential, many parents took them at their word and found education elsewhere. And she closes her argument by noting, as we did last week, that Governor Gavin Newsom, who oversaw some of the very worst numbers on in-classroom learning in California. He just got an education award in Washington, D.C. She writes, no wonder parents want to take their money and run. No kidding. We'll step aside. KT McFarland is here next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day. I am pleased to welcome back to the airwaves KT McFarland, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor. She's worked for multiple presidents over her career. She's author of the book Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. And KT, great to have you back. 
That's always an honor and a pleasure. You know, last week we were trying to get you on, and your team said she's on grandmother duty. I said, okay, we will not take her away from that. That is priority number one. When she's available, we'd love KT, and here you are. So we're glad to to make it onto the calendar because we're uh, a few levels down from the grandkids, as it should be. I want to pick your brain about the Saudi Arabia trip from President Biden. I was born in Saudi Arabia, something that a lot of people don't know. That's where I arrived on the scene. My dad was working over there. My mother joined him. I have no memory of it. I was gone when I was a a tiny infant. We moved back to the U.S. before heading abroad a couple years later. But I just watched the Saudi space a little bit more closely because of that. And, of course, it was all in the headlines the last couple of days because of the fact that Biden was going there at all. And then the agenda that he had on the ground with Saudi officials, the fist bump has become very controversial with him bumping fists with MBS, the crown prince, whom he had accused of being responsible for the murder of an American journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, a number of years ago, and the dismemberment of that Washington Post columnist. And Biden, as a candidate, as you recall, KT, was very tough on the Saudis, called Saudi Arabia a pariah state. And that's not really the vibe that we got off of him at all when he was over there trying to convince the Saudis to pump more oil because of the gasoline prices and sort of the political crisis that Biden has in some ways created for himself. Just big picture, what are your thoughts on Biden going over there, what he was trying to accomplish? Are people reading too much into the fist bump or is that significant? What's your read on this? It was a fiasco. Look, he went over and debased himself compared to what he said he was going to do as president. Now, I might argue that that was a dumb thing that he said, that he was going to create a pariah state out of Saudi Arabia. But nonetheless, he said it. He, he staked out what he thought was a high moral ground. And then he goes there and all chummy, chummy, fist bump, et cetera, to beg the Saudis to pump more oil. And he didn't get what he wanted. So he debased himself and got nothing for it. So to me, it's a it's a it's a double mistake because the Saudis, I mean, the, the White House issued this strange um, press release saying that well they've gotten the Saudis to agree to pump more oil to bring down the price, but yet if you looked at what the Saudis were saying, they they said no, that they're going to meet with OPEC, their OPEC meeting in September, OPEC plus Russia, and that they'll make their decisions then. So the Saudis really said. You know, they kind of disavowed what Biden was saying. And meanwhile, the markets were listening not to Joe Biden and the White House press release, but they were listening to the Saudis and the price of oil jumped today. But what makes me the maddest is just think of all the bad stuff that's happening in the world today. A lot of it goes back to a core decision Joe Biden made on the first day of his presidency, which was to declare war on American fossil fuels. As a result of that, the price of oil and natural gas skyrocketed almost immediately. And what it did was it made Iran rich and it made Russia rich because they're both big exporters of oil. That's how they make the money to fund their governments. It also makes the Saudis rich. So all of a sudden, Russia, now rich, can go to war with Ukraine. It's, it's, it financed the war in Ukraine. All of a sudden, Iran, newly rich because of the oil revenues, they could develop their nuclear weapons program. Now, as a result of the war in Ukraine, what's happening? Well, the wheat that's supposed to go from Ukraine to um, the Middle East, particularly to Egypt and North Africa, 
That's not going to go because of the war in Ukraine. So the price of, of grain is going to go through the roof. There will be grain shortages and food shortages in the world by the fall. And as a result of that, there will be a humanitarian and refugee crisis of people leaving the Middle East and South and North Africa to go who knows where, probably to Europe. So all of those things, it's like a domino effect that when Joe Biden kicked over that first domino of declaring war on American fossil fuels so that the world oil production diminished because America was no longer doing what it was doing before, as a result of that, we are now in a situation where the Iranians are going to get nuclear weapons. The Middle East is going to be hungry and a humanitarian crisis. And the war in Ukraine can go on more or less forever. It is jarring when you put it that way to remember what Biden said as a candidate, pariah state, all of that, talking tough. Then he comes in and you're right, day one, effectively through policy, declares war on American fossil fuels. And now here he is less than two years into that presidency, jetting over on Air Force One to Saudi Arabia. They were not taking his phone calls not long ago. So he shows up, fist bumps the guy that he said was directly responsible for this murder of a journalist, begging for more oil. And you'd think you could just go and beg in places like Alaska and Texas. Instead, they're punishing that industry here at home for political reasons. And they're going over, as you said, this is your characterization, debasing himself with the people that he has really harshly criticized. And the outcome is at best uncertain of whether or not that actually worked. It it seems just totally incoherent. Yeah, it's I mean, I used to think that maybe they were just so incompetent they couldn't understand this, the domino effect of all the decisions they were making. I now think it's really I mean, I think in part it's it's intentional. They want the price of oil and natural gas to be high. They they want everybody to stop driving fossil based fuels and using fossil based fuels. They want us somehow to all use electric cars, which they think the electricity comes from the wall. They don't realize electricity is generated in power plants that use coal and natural gas. They haven't sort of made that connection yet. But they want the price to be high. They don't want to have to pay the political price for high gasoline prices. But that domino decision early on has created all the international problems we have, and it is absolutely cratering the American economy. So that if you're the average American, you're mad at Joe Biden like five times a day because you're mad when you go to the grocery store because of the inflation. You're mad when you have to fill up your gas tank because it's so high. You're mad every time you drive past a gas station and you see five dollar a gallon gas. And you remember, gee, just two years ago, it was like two, you know, one fifty or two dollars a gallon. So I think the political price they're paying is quite high and deservedly well, so. They own yeah, it and, and they did it. I would say. And KT, elections have consequences. Policies have consequences. It's not just stuff, you know, happens in a vacuum and it doesn't have real world effects. Of course it does. Now, you mentioned that there seems to be a bit of a gap between what the White House is saying was agreed to on oil versus what the Saudis are saying. There's also a disagreement that has spilled over since Biden left Saudi territory on whether or not he pressed MBS, the crown prince, on the Khashoggi killing. The Saudis are saying that didn't happen. The foreign minister said that he did not hear that happen. Biden is disputing it, saying, no, the Saudis aren't telling the truth. Here's just a quick exchange with a reporter. Cut 22. The Saudi foreign minister says he didn't hear you accuse the crown prince of Khashoggi's murder. Is he telling the truth? No. No, says Biden. 
I'm not sure we should be taking the Saudi regime's word on anything, but this is a back and forth now, a tit for tat that probably does not bode terribly well if the goal is cooperation. My question for you, KT, drawing on your foreign policy experience going back decades and multiple administrations spanning multiple presidents, what is the correct balance for an American government, an American administration, an American president trying to maintain relations and get things that we need out of regimes that are at best deeply flawed, deeply imperfect, and in fact quite authoritarian and abusive? Are there ways to make sure that you don't ignore human rights concerns and press that issue without completely alienating, for example, in this case, Saudi Arabia, who's a bulwark against Iran? I know that the Democrats sort of prefer Iran to the Arab states, which is totally bizarre to me. But this is a dance that foreign policy makers have to perform from time to time. How is that balance best struck? Because it doesn't seem like President Biden really achieved that just here recently. No, I mean, he's losing on all counts. If he really look, the whole point of, of the Trump administration and the understanding that we had in the Trump administration was that if, if you if the price of oil is high, Russia, and it has been historically for the last 50 years, every time the price of oil is high, Russia rebuilds its military, it invades its neighbors, and it fights proxy wars around the world. Every time the price of oil is low, the Russians can't afford any of that, so they hunger down at home. We knew that we had this unique opportunity because of American um, energy development, it fracked, you know, shale oil, shale gas. And it turned you know, 10, 10, about 10, 15 years ago, American engineers and scientists they in physicists, they figured out how to get oil and natural gas out of rocks. It's 3D mapping, it's horizontal drilling, it's um, hydraulic fracturing. But in any event, we figured out how to do it. Nobody else in the world figured out how to do it. And it turned out that not only could we do it, but we had the best rocks of anybody in the world. What that meant was that the United States could not just be energy independent. That was great. Being energy independent mean we did not have to be beholden to the Middle East. We did not have to be beholden to the Russians. We had our own energy, our own oil. We could export oil. But it meant also that because we could do it at such a low price compared to all these other countries, we could become energy dominant. That would mean that the United States could replace Russia, could replace Saudi Arabia, could replace Iran, and we would become the world's major hub of, of energy. We could, we could do that at a low energy price. We would make money on it. The Russians would be bankrupt. The Saudis would be bankrupt. We understood that that gave us enormous political leverage. So the question that you've asked about what should the balance be, well, we would have all the leverage. We could be in a very different position. We would not have to beg somebody for something. But that, that trade-off that you make between, you know, do you dance with the devil or do you not? It's the trade-off that, that FDR had to make in World War II. Would he have to cooperate with Stalin to defeat Hitler and Nazi Germany and Nazi Japan, the fascist Japan. It's the same trade-off that we're dealing with right now with China. Do we sell, do we have economic relations with China, although we know that they have slave labor camps and they're persecuting Muslims in Xinjiang province? Do we do that? Well, once the United States is in a dominant position, economically, technologically, in those ways, we're in a very different position. We don't have to beg. We're in a position of setting certain standards, and I do think the United States is a beacon to the world 
But but once we're in a beholden situation, as we are now with Saudi Arabia, as we are now with China, then we're not in the position to really advance our own moral interests in the world, as we would otherwise Since you raised China, just one more question on a separate issue, and we touched on it last week with General Jack Keane, the shocking assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in Japan was a major world news event. Obviously, it had huge repercussions in Japan, and Abe's political party, which is a nationalist right-wing party, right-leaning party, they went on to win the election that he was campaigning for that party, and when he was shot— they won a huge supermajority, and they now have enough votes, if they want to, to reform the constitution in that country to really build up their military and militarize in a way that they haven't since World War II. I wonder how you feel like that could play out as at least something of a bulwark against China, because setting aside what happened those decades ago in World War II, the Japanese government, they've been a great ally to the United States. They're in the region Do you think it would be a positive development to have a more robust, increasingly muscular military, uh, you know, based in Tokyo, based in Japan, right across that sea from communist China? Absolutely. No question about it. A stronger Japan economically has been a great ally of ours, but a strong Japan in the security sense would be an even more important ally. The United States is not going to be able to deal with China, and particularly China and Russia, ganging up against us. We won't be able to do it in the long run. The way we can deal with it is to have China face not just the United States alone and isolated, but the United States in a strong economic and security alliance with Japan, with Korea, with Philippines, with our like-minded neighbors in the Indo-Pacific region. It's crucial that Japan does what you've just described. Katie McFarland was Deputy National Security Advisor under President Trump. She has served multiple presidents during her career. Her book is Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. Katie, always enjoy it, always appreciate it, uh, and I guess you can head back to your grandkids now if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> two under two, crazy. <laughs> oh, bu- Busy times. Enjoy, Katie. Always enjoy ta- uh, chatting with you here. Thank you. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. So I'm here to ask you to do what you know how to do. Because when you do what you do on all of these issues, the American people win. Beautifully said. Madam Vice President, as usual. It's the Guy Benson Show. Kamala Harris doing what she does. And when she does what she do, the American people do notice. We have a little rolling mashup of some of her greatest hits, some of her best work, if you will. We haven't played it in a while. Let's uh, let's revisit Cut 24. I think that there can be no higher priority than what we have 
been clear is our highest priority. We got to take this stuff seriously, as seriously as you are, because you have been forced to have to take it seriously. I do believe that we should have rightly believed, but we certainly believe that the significance of the passage of time. It is time for us to do what we have been doing, which is why we will work together and continue to work together. We all believe that when we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. That has a, a, a long history of, of being part of America's history. I acknowledge one must acknowledge. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. <laughs> that time, that time is every day. The significance of the passage of time is still my favorite, I think, of the whole group. Well, here's a new Kamala Harris headline. She's losing two more top aides in this just exodus that has characterized her office really dating back years. This is not new or novel in the vice presidency. She has always hemorrhaged staffers. She's, I guess, kind of difficult to work for and work with. That would be the educated guess. And there have been lots of reports about this with dozens of sources, many of them anonymous, talking about what it's like to work for Kamala Harris. So now you've got a top domestic policy advisor jumping ship and also the vice president's director of speech writing, a woman named Megan Groob, who will be departing from the vice president's office. Foxnews.com with the story Right here, Vice President Kamala Harris losing two more top aides, the latest in a growing list of departures in her office since she assumed the vice presidency in January 2021. And they list who's leaving and when. And what strikes me about Megan Groom, the speechwriting director, leaving, she's jumping ship after only four months on the job. Didn't even make it a third of the year, basically. Four months. That is not a lot of passage of time. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour underway here on The Guy Benson Show, our second out of three between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is on demand and free of charge each and every day right there at your fingertips. GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on special report tonight, part of the panel with Brett Bayer and friends. That's around 6.40 p.m. Eastern time on Fox News Channel. With us now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, welcome back, sir. Hey, Guy. Great to be back on the show. So we got yesterday some new polling from Fox News, our nonpartisan pollster here, and it is more bad news for the president of the United States. He has fallen to his worst number yet overall. He's at 40 percent approval, which is actually better than a lot of the other polls out there. But he's 19 points underwater. The trajectory is the same as it is in a lot of these other surveys. And when you dig below and deeper than the top line number, which is quite bad, on specific issues, the economy, on inflation, 
the numbers are even uglier. 31% approval on the economy, 68% disapproval. On inflation, 25% approval, 73% disapproval. So kind of close to the right track, wrong track numbers there. Your overall analysis of yet another dreadful national survey for President Biden. Yeah, Guy, look, these are not good numbers for the White House. 40% job approval, uh, Republicans with a three-point advantage on the generic congressional ballot. Uh, The weakness that you see with Biden is centered on the economy and inflation. Those are the most important issues for for Americans right now. So, you know, these are numbers that suggest that Republicans could potentially uh, score a landslide in in the November midterms. The one silver lining, the one green shoot for uh, Democrats is that for the first time in a long time, the Fox poll found that Republicans and Democrats are equally excited about going to the polls for the midterm elections, about two-thirds of both voters from both parties are are very enthused. Uh, Democrats have held the disadvantage in that question, both in the Fox poll and a whole lot of other polls for quite some time. So there's some evidence that the abortion uh, Supreme Court ruling, uh, the issue of gun control perhaps, Trump's uh, the January 6th hearing and and potential Trump reemergence on the campaign trail. It looks like Democrats are a little more engaged than they've been in in, in quite some time. And that, that may potentially cut down their losses a little bit. But by and large, these are just dismal numbers for the governing party. Yep. And I was talking through some of the Fox numbers. I mentioned 31 percent approval for Biden on the economy, 25 percent on inflation. CNN, they have their own pollster. They have new numbers out. And on the economy, his job approval is 30 percent on inflation, 25 percent. So basically identical across those two polls, and they're not really surprising outcomes. And, Josh, I think one of the concerns that Democrats have to have right now is, is there any real chance that things are going to get substantially better between now, mid-July, and, let's say, mid-October? I mean, that window for brighter news starting to change the outlook of a lot of voters is really closing. And I know there's a lot of people who tend to believe that in a midterm cycle, the sentiment is baked in really by summertime. And we're in the middle of the summer right now. It seems like it might be kind of a game now at the margins of mitigating loss as opposed to any kind of sea change in the electoral environment. Does that sound right? Yeah. Historically, the the political environment is often baked in the cake in in the summer before the midterm election. So absent any just dramatic of breaking news until November, the president's going to be looking at pretty pretty rough numbers. And if you believe the economic forecasters guy, that the possibility of a recession or worse economic data is certainly a very real possibility. So things don't look like they're going to be getting better, at least if you believe the, the, the smart economic analysts. Interest rates are going to go up. Growth may slow down. We may see that unemployment rate even go up along with the inflation. And that is another warning sign for the for the party in power. Uh, now, again, like maybe there's a miracle and things dramatically change for the better uh, before November. Maybe gas prices go down significantly as they started to do in some some parts of the country. But uh, those are minimal green shoots at a time when so many of the leading indicators, both in the economy and in the larger sense, are, are really rough for the for the White House. Looking at some specific races, Josh, I saw some polling out of Nevada where the Democrats are in danger of getting wiped out out in the Silver State 
But in the polling, a number of those Democratic incumbents and Democrats in those uh, closely contested races were slightly ahead of their Republican challengers or, you know, generic Republicans. That was the good news for the Democrats. The bad news was they were in the low to mid 40s, the incumbents. And so that's when you start to wonder, okay, when an incumbent is floating well below the 50 percent mark and is closer to 40 percent than 50 percent, even if they are nominally leading by a couple of points, are a lot of the late deciders or so-called undecideds, that group has a huge overlap with Biden disapprovers and wrong trackers. I mean, there's a chance that they could maybe pull some of this stuff out of the fire and survive some of the races. But you would imagine that if incumbents are not in really robust position for reelection in, you know, very close states or districts, they could be really white knuckling things heading into election night, given the way that those, you know, those people who aren't necessarily yet telling pollsters which way they're going to commit, it seems more likely that they would break the way of the opposition party, given how unpopular the ruling party and its figurehead currently are right now, right? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, you tend to see undecided voters break against the the, the party in power. You know, I think this year there could be some exceptions to that rule, given especially in some of the Senate races we've talked about on the show. Uh, there, there could be some candidate quality issues for Republicans. You might see that dynamic not 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 hold up totally this year. But, yeah, like by and large, if you're at under 50 percent and like those Nevada Democratic members of Congress are right now in that poll and you're well under 50, even if you're leading, it's not a great sign. It's a sign that you're, you're in trouble. And you see, num- you know, you see polling after polling. I mean, a lot of Democratic incumbents, a number of Democratic incumbents, both in the House and in the Senate, are already trailing uh, their challengers, uh, which is a very ominous sign at, at this early stage of the, of the campaign. And the ones that aren't, or the ones in battleground states and districts that aren't, are often below 50 percent, uh, that, that they're not at the, at the majority mark at this point. So uh, the, the, all, all the makings are there for a really sizable Republican wave. Now, Republicans need to have strong campaigns, good candidates. There's some yep. reported over the weekend, real questions about some of the Senate candidates uh, in these big races. But if they can get the, the good candidates and good good on-message campaigners, that is, is, is a sign that they'll, they'll be having a big, big night in November. Well, you know, I just saw the Des Moines Register poll today that has Kim Reynolds, the Republican governor who just gave the State of the Union response uh, to President Biden a few months ago. Iowa is obviously a state that's getting redder. There's no question about that. But she's up 17 points in that race. That's the type of data point that really does suggest uh, a wave could be building to have someone like Governor Reynolds up by 17 points. But to your point on the Senate side, there are questions about the quality of some of the Republican nominees or would-be nominees that are still in the middle of their primaries. And that could end up being a factor where Republicans leave some races uh, on the field, where they, they actually could have won some that they end up not. I think it's too early to tell which way those will break. But the the fundraising numbers have been very good for Democrats, not so great for Republicans and Josh, it kind of does seem like Democrats are, ironically, becoming the party of big money in elections. They seem to outraise Republicans almost all the time on a national level. And it seems like that disparity is even more pronounced this year. Yeah, and I wrote a piece for Axios last week about 
the Republican Party becoming more working class centered and the Democratic Party being more aligned with the elites. And then that's what you're seeing in the donation uh, scorecard. You, you have Democrats setting records uh, for for big money, uh, getting getting money from both big and small donors alike, but setting fundraising records, having no trouble financing their campaigns. I mean, to me, the bigger issue, the bigger challenge for Republicans isn't the Democrats. Democrat, you know, there's a certain point of diminishing returns. Once you've raised a lot of money, uh, everything – I mean, it's nice to have a big number, but all you need to do is raise enough money to finance a campaign. The, the bigger issue for Republicans and what's making Republicans a little bit worried is that in some of these races, they're not raising much money at all. They're, they're not raising enough money to get their message out on television. Uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio, which should be a pretty Republican state, hasn't spent a single dollar on, on TV for his campaign in the general election. Tim Ryan spent almost $7 million. Like that, that, that is a, just a gaping gap um, that suggests that the Republicans that, – that, that Vance is having trouble raising money. Uh, you have like Arizona, Pennsylvania, uh, some other – New Hampshire, a big one, where you have Republican candidates that can win and yet are not raising enough money to get their message on television. So you know that that is the big – Democrats are the party of the, the wealthy at, at this point, and they should be raising the big money. That's not, not a surprise. They raised a lot of money, by the way, guy, in 2020, and they didn't win a lot of the, these big Senate races. But the difference between 2020 and 2022 is that a lot of the GOP Senate candidates aren't raising the type of money you'd expect in this type of political environment. Is that because a lot of Republicans are just sort of assuming that the midterms are going to go well and they're already looking ahead to 2024? So that's one. I asked a lot of really smart Republican officials and strategists why this is happening. It's very unusual when you have a good Republican year to not see the top candidates raising good money. Um, well, that's one reason that Republican donors are – convinced that they don't need to do anything to win the Senate, that it's all, all in the bag. And that, that's not the case. Um, you know, the other reasons I think are a lot of these Republican candidates are Trump-backed. Trump They're not establishment so-called candidates. And a lot of donors are uncomfortable with some of these candidates, with their background, their record, stuff they're saying on the campaign trail. Uh, they're not your typical conventional candidates that uh, – you know, some, someone like J.D. Vance, you know, attacks big donors, attacks a lot of the, the leadership in, in Washington. And that's rubbed a lot of uh, Republican donors the wrong way. It, it may be good politics for him to attack big money in Washington, but he's attacked some folks in his own party. And I think that's had an impact. Um, and, you know, I think I think thirdly, the just, the, you know, the qual candidate quality is also an issue for donors. And, um, you know, someone like, you know, Blake Masters is an interesting example who's the Trump endorsed candidate in Arizona. He's backed by Peter Thiel. He's going to have a super PAC spending money on his behalf. But he's not – outside of Peter Thiel, he's not getting a whole lot of money from anyone else. And it is important to get – even if you have backing from a, a big donor, it is important to raise money in small dollar amounts and, and get support uh, and build support for your campaign from a whole lot of folks. And uh, so there is a, a candidate quality issue where these folks aren't getting, getting out there and introducing themselves perhaps to the types of donors that they need to reach out to. Lastly, Josh, from the Senate race in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, who is the Democrat, he's been largely off the trail with some serious health issues. He has a lead in a lot of the polling over Dr. Oz, who is the Trump-backed Republican nominee out there. I saw that Fetterman is bringing Elizabeth Warren into Pennsylvania to campaign for him. That is uh, certainly a choice. He is a progressive kind of Bernie-type guy. And it seems like maybe he's not really going to run away from that very much, perhaps sensing that Dr. Oz is too unpopular to win. So he's going to sort of really carry that progressive flag. I wonder if that 
meets the moment, so to speak, in a year like this, an election cycle like this, where Elizabeth Warren is, you know, an extremely polarizing, pretty extremist figure. Yeah, I think that Pennsylvania race is, is, is wide open, regardless of what the polls right now are saying. Um, I mean, uh, there's some questions about Dr. Oz and his ability to run a good campaign and whether he's going to put his own money, which he has a lot of, in, into, the, into the race. But Fetterman, we still don't know about his health. We still haven't seen him on the campaign trail. I've heard that there, there are some you know, serious health issues that could, could hamper his ability to run a full-fledged campaign. Um, and, and look, you're, you're, you're right that he is – you're seeing some of that progressive, uh, both excitement and vulnerability that that could could emerge in this general election. Uh, he's gotten a doing a fundraiser with Elizabeth Warren in Philadelphia at the end of the month. We'll see if he's there actually, but, but she's going to be raising money for his campaign. And you know, I also saw recently in the last week he promoted an endorsement from a very left wing foreign policy group that's vocally anti-Israel, and he promoted that on his Twitter feed. And I was a little bit surprised to see someone like that who tried to run to the middle in the primary, started endorsing or accepting and embracing an endorsement from a pretty pretty far-left group um, and now that he's in the general election. So there's, there's going to be a lot of worry in Democratic circles, both about Fetterman's health and whether he's a little bit too left in, in a swing state like Pennsylvania. Josh Krasauer, senior political reporter at Axios, and he's a Fox News radio political analyst here as well. Josh, always appreciate it. Talk soon. Thanks, Guy. And we'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. At the top of the hour, I neglected to give you the Dow. So here's a Fox News alert. The Dow closing in the red today, down 216 points, ending at 31,072. We got over the weekend, as anticipated, the June numbers at the border. Bill Malugin was our guest last week, and he suggested that the number would be a little over 200,000. He was right. 207,416. That's down from May. He thinks July will likely be up again. But it's also the highest number of border encounters and apprehensions in the history of DHS. It's the fourth consecutive month over 200,000 as the border crisis rages uncontrolled, as it has through much of this presidency, as incentivized by this president. The New York Post reporting that the total has been 1.7 million stops along the southern border since October 1st, which is the most... U.S. Customs and Border Protection have encountered in any fiscal year since 1960. Nationwide, they write, border officials have encountered more than 2 million migrants since October 1st of 2021. And as Malugin always hastens to point out, and so do we, those numbers, the encounters, do not count, do not include known and unknown gotaways. And there were... At least, based on Malugin's sources, 50,000 known gotaways in the month of June alone. Similar number back in May. The gotaways, just that category, known gotaways, because there's no way of knowing the unknown gotaways, just the gotaways, since Biden took office, it's approaching a million. A million. 
So we will continue to follow this crisis and this story very closely as we have throughout this administration. It is a debacle in the new Fox News poll. President Biden's number on immigration is deep underwater, something like 25 points underwater, should be even lower. And I got a kick out of this. Mayor Bowser here in D.C. was whining about how Texas has been busing illegal immigrants up to Washington, D.C., and she is saying the the government should do something about that. They're doing this across state lines. Oh, is, is that a problem, Muriel? You don't like illegal immigrants just showing up en masse in your city? Well, is there an issue there? Maybe your problem isn't with Governor Abbott in the state of Texas. Maybe your problem is a, up the food chain. Because what you're experiencing is a tiny drop of what they're experiencing down there. Sort of a self-unaware comment from her. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, thank you very much for listening. From Washington, D.C., I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free on demand every day. Joining us now once again is Jason Rance, host of The Jason Rance Show on KTTH in Seattle, Tacoma, our affiliate out there. You see him all the time on TV. Jason, great to have you again. Thank you so much. I always appreciate it. So there has been this viral video circulating on social media the last couple of days featuring a woman in distress confronting some protesters near her home. They were there, the protesters, to honor the life of someone who had been shot dead by police. She was aghast and infuriated that they were doing that. And the audio is really quite something to listen to. Here is just part of the exchange. I'll play more of it in a moment, but this is just a taste. Cut 16. You guys are celebrating his life. It was a terror. I'm sure it was this a terror. Not okay. 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 You're alive. Not okay. Shut up. You guys need to just let it go. Grief in silence. This is not okay. okay. This is not a George Floyd situation. George Floyd was un- unarmed. He was Okay, so you can hear people heckling her. You're alive. Shut up. This happened in Minneapolis. Can you, Jason, describe the facts of the case here that led up to that confrontation? Well, as far as we know, the the allegation is that the suspect in this case who ended up getting shot by police, Tekle Sundberg, was going through some sort of mental health crisis. He picked up a gun. He shot it. It sounds like uh, at least early on indiscriminately, and it goes into the household department of Arabella Yarbrough, who you just played. And, you know, we've seen some of the images coming out of her home. I mean, it looks like it completely destroyed her bathroom, or at least one wall of the bathroom, shattered glass. She was just making supper for her kids who were there at the time. There was a police response, of course. We're told that he shot at the officers as they were there trying to help Yarborough. And then a six-hour or so uh, back-and-forth happened. They tried to make contact with him. Apparently, it was not easy. He was unwilling to talk directly to police via the telephone. He was shouting from the apartment complex, but they were saying they couldn't really hear him. At one point, the guy's father goes to 
plead with him to come out or at least have conversations with the police. He did not. And snipers ended up shooting and killing him. We don't know precisely what led to that beyond they believe that there was the possibility of people getting injured or killed as a result of whatever it was that uh, Sundberg was doing at the time that they decided to uh, to end it. We're waiting to get the police body camera. There are lots of officers there. That has to, that means you have to actually go through all the body cam footage before you release it. So we anticipate that we'll get it maybe within the next two or three days. But obviously, because he was shot and killed, the BLM protesters showed up in mass over the weekend to pretend that he was the victim. That's the thing. They were pretending and sort of foisting upon the public or attempting to this narrative that the deceased criminal is the victim in all of this. Now, of course, he's dead. He's dead after he was shooting at innocent people, including this woman and her kids, endangering their lives, just sitting in their homes, getting ready for dinner. And then when police arrived, he also engaged the officers and was shooting at cops. And eventually he was killed. And there were some folks who were implying that he was unarmed, which is a lie, a major lie by omission. And yet they're trying some BLM activists and people in that universe, in that sphere are trying to turn this guy into a cause celeb. And obviously one of his would-be victims, this woman whose voice you heard in the soundbite, Arabella Yarborough, was having none of it. And the abuse that was heaped upon her by supporters of the deceased criminal is really pretty breathtaking to watch and to listen to. And, and yet it's not shocking because you have activists who never truly care about who they perceive or pretend to be the victim. It's always about the police. Their end goal is to dismantle police departments. They want to defund. They want to impose different policies that you know, reflect their worldview as far as policing should be, and a lot of them are abolitionists. So they don't really pay any attention to the, you know, the so-called victim, and when they have the details, they just omit them. I mean the way that – so Ben Crump, the attorney – put out a tweet over the weekend, and they, they, he shows a, a photo of Sunberg, and he tweets, Minneapolis Police Department killed this smart, loving, and artistic 20-year-old after an hours-long standoff while he was experiencing a mental health crisis. We need to know why his mental health crisis became a death sentence. That is so disingenuous. It is so despicable what it is that they're doing. But when you have a political end goal, which is to constantly go after the police, then it kind of, it, it makes sense. And I'm so glad that this mother stepped up and said, no, we're not going to allow you to take the narrative here. What you're saying here is false. I'm the actual victim. My kids are the actual victim. And she's going – it was funny because one of the hecklers says, oh, she's just doing this for her airtime. Good. I'm glad she got the airtime because she's the voice that needs to be heard, not the lunatics in the crowd. She went on in this back and forth with the protesters who were there to glorify, almost sanctify the criminal who was shooting at her and her children. In cut 17, she wasn't done. Jason, it's hard to understand 
the mentality of the people who were looking at her with scorn and contempt. And you can hear it in her voice just how totally righteously outraged she is at these people as she's trying to just scream in their faces to get it through their thick skulls. This person tried to kill her in front of her children, and they are taking his side and telling her to be quiet and to shut up and to go away. And at one point, people were trying to suggest that she has privilege because I guess she is brown-skinned and not black-skinned, and she talked about having a black kid. I mean, there is a psychosis that has very much taken over elements of the identitarian left, I'd say large elements of it. And this was just a vivid illustration of that psychosis in real time. And I think if you just talk to most average Americans who are not activists, if you give them the set of facts that we seem to know so far, and you're right, we're gathering more information about what happened. But based on what we know at this point, I would imagine that the vast, vast majority of the American people would share her anger and would share her clarity on this and would be appalled by the BLM activists who have decided to show up and turn him into some sort of hero or victim in all of this. And I think that they actively alienate people on a regular basis, and I just don't know if they are so insular that they don't realize the damage they do to their own cause, however you want to define it. Yeah, and I would actually go one step further. I think if the media did a better job covering these events and covering the shootings in which BLM activists claim police overstepped their bounds, the BLM movement would not be what it is today. There's a perfect example from here in Seattle. It actually happened a few years ago, but it just went through yet another inquest, in this case, an inquest process clearing the cops. Cops go in, they get called to a burglary that didn't actually happen. A woman who was pregnant and black faked a burglary, got officers into her home and then decided to pull a knife on them and try to kill them. Despite asking her to drop the knife multiple times, she didn't. She advanced. They end up shooting and killing her. This appears to have been a suicide by cop scenario. Now, rather than understand what happened and be honest about what happened, they, of course, the activists here went after the cops. Every single time that folks either uh, use someone's name or show a photo with the name attached as, as part of their movement and who they're fighting for, I dare anyone just to Google a few of them. Pick some at random. Pick the one you've never heard of and just Google it and get the details of that case. And you will see time and time again, this was not one of those uh, abuses. And abuses have happened. There's no doubt. Sure. But the vast majority of the like cases— George Floyd. Yeah, like George Floyd. But the fact of the matter is that's the outlier. That is not the norm. And it's very, very, very easy to fact check. So every single time I see a name being used, I'm like, I don't remember that one. Let me Google it. I was like, oh, this is the person who shot multiple times at cops, and then they returned fire after going on a high-speed chase. Or the case that you just described in Seattle, a woman lured the police to her apartment for the purpose of attacking them with a knife, which she did, and then they shot her. There are the George Floyds and Breonna Taylors, which are terrible abuses. And I think it does no one any good to conflate those circumstances with others, even though it happens all the time. They're trying to do it here in Minneapolis again. I think of Jacob Blake during the 2020 election cycle where the same type of thing happened, right, where he was described in news stories. Even to this day recently, we've seen some news stories describing him falsely as someone who was shot dead. He wasn't as an unarmed black man. He was not unarmed. He was armed. He grabbed a knife in his car. He was also a criminal who was violating a restraining order, 
against a woman he had allegedly sexually assaulted, and he was turned into some sort of hero. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, President Biden spoke very favorably about him, then a candidate. Kamala Harris went and visited him. And the details that don't quite align with the capital N narrative that are inconvenient to that storyline get elided or ignored. And I think that's what really bothers so many people. We're not blind in saying that the police are perfect. I mean, my goodness, look at Uvalde. You should never question the police. There's never anything wrong. When bad things happen, then they should be criticized and investigated and, if necessary, prosecuted and punished. But when all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. And it seems like for a lot of these activists and the networks that they operate with and a lot of their sort of amplification with the news media, they come after all of these situations with the same approach, regardless of the details of the case, which I think is not just wrong, but actually dangerous. Yeah, details don't matter when, to, to the activists. When you are focused on an end goal, and in this case the end goal is abolishing police, when you believe that these systems are systems of oppression and there's institutionalized racism, we have to destroy it, well, then I think a lot of folks just justify it in their head how they mislead or who they choose to fight for because they think it's for a greater good. And it's not for a greater good. It's actually going to make our community, as we've seen, frankly, across the country in the cities that adopted the BLM policies of getting rid of cash bail or defunding the police, they do the opposite of what we were promised they would do. And you're starting to see not just people turn on BLM in moments like this, but we're very clearly seeing a momentum shift away from sort of these fringe views on policing or on the criminal justice system in a bigger way. We see what's going on. Well, especially among people in those communities. Exactly. Well, and that's the point. I mean, so there's two different communities that we can talk about here. Black communities overwhelmingly say, look, sure, we would like to see some reforms, I guess, depending on where they are living, but we don't want to get rid of the cops because when you get rid of the cops, guess what? The victims are the people who live in those black communities. Those are the disproportionate victims there. And then number two, to that, to the point you just made, you've got a lot of Democrats, right? So when Chesa Boudin gets recalled in San Francisco, that's not the, the 12 conservatives who live there. That's the liberals saying, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. We created this monster. He's gone way too far. We've got to pull it back. Those are the ones who are making these decisions, and I think that we can't understate how important it is that it's the left that's finally pushing back. And they should because they're the ones responsible for this. Not like conservatives were getting behind the, uh, the fringe BLM movement. Hmm, right, and I also think that for some of these activists – It just reeks of privilege to be talking about abolishing or defunding the police and people who would be adversely affected by that. These people purport to speak on their behalf. And as we've seen over and over again in elections, in polling, just on the ground, that is not true. It is far from the truth. Jason, very quickly on another story, I want to ask you this. It's out of New Jersey. I don't know if you saw this. There was a transgender prisoner, an inmate at a prison in New Jersey who has impregnated two female inmates in the female prison, and they are now moving that inmate out because she has impregnated two women. And my question for you is, is it transphobic to say that if an inmate has male genitalia capable of impregnating biological women, that individual should not be in a women's prison? 
I mean, I'm, I'm not a biologist, so I'll, I'll, I'll tread lightly here. <laughs> uh, no, it is not transphobic. It is common sense to hold that position. And most people hold that position. The thing is, a lot of these cases, people don't even realize is happening. I mean, we, we went through a number of, of similar circumstances where men, biological men, were being transferred to women's prisons here in Washington State, and all they had to do was claim that they're transgender. But in many of the cases that we've covered, they weren't even presenting as female. <laughs> this was a scam from these men in this case who were choosing to identify this way just so they can get into a women's prison. Does no one see the giant problems here? Are, are folks on the left so insular to just reality that they want to pretend that these criminals are otherwise really good people who are totally honest? And there's no circumstance in which a heterosexual cisgendered male might game the system and our stupidity, frankly, and take advantage. No, no one wants to have that conversation? Really? I mean, who is shocked by this news? Seriously, who is shocked other than the person who goes, wait, we're doing this? That, that's odd to me. Those are the only people who are shocked. Jason Rance is host of The Jason Rance Show, KTTH out in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Tacoma, the Guy Benson Show affiliate out there. Jason, always enjoy our conversations. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Can't wait. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back on The Guy Benson Show, a very scary and tragic scene in Indiana yesterday at a shopping mall in the suburbs of Indianapolis. A gunman, described as an adult male with a long gun, showed up and started killing people. In fact, I saw earlier in the police press conference that he had two other guns with him as well. So he was intent on wreaking a lot of havoc and death, and he did kill three people, wounded others, and he was stopped by a bystander described by the police as a good Samaritan with a handgun, someone who was legally carrying his licensed firearm, had it on his person, confronted this person who was apparently indiscriminately killing people at a shopping mall and took him out. Now, we hear frequently from gun control advocates on the left that the good guy with a gun theory is a myth, even though there's example after example of armed citizens intervening to stop bloodshed. There are many examples of the good guy with a gun phenomenon. They pretend it doesn't exist. They call it a myth. And then when there is a conclusive example of it taking place, they ignore it. Or in this case, they're actually attacking the guy who intervened. I saw that a top gun control advocate described what he did as vigilantism, which I don't think is the appropriate way to say thank you for using your constitutionally protected rights to stop a killing spree. And it's interesting now, it seems like some on the left have created this paradigm where good guys with a gun intervening on a mass shooting don't exist, it's not real, it's a right-wing myth, and when they do exist, actually it's bad, which doesn't really seem like a good faith argument to me. Our hearts go out to the families and the loved ones of the victims who were killed, and an earnest round of applause for the brave individual who put an end to it with his own firearm. It could have been much worse. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Tom Rinaldi from Fox Sports, a very interesting story that you don't want to miss. Straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on this Monday edition of the Guy Benson Show, the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is just terrific. It is so delicious, and more of you are learning about that every day. They're expanding across the country. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can check out where they're sold near you. You can order online, TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. And our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. All the content you could ever want related to this show, GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast is free on demand when the show is over every single day. Quick programming note, I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Bayer on the panel in the latter part of the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time, so coming up in the next hour. Hope to see you there on Fox News Channel. Joining us now for the first time here on the program is Tom Rinaldi, a reporter at Fox Sports and host of a new podcast, Tom Rinaldi Presents Wesley. And the first episode in this eight-part series drops today. First of all, Tom, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I want to just give a quick taste to the audience about what's coming in this series that you put together on your podcast. Here's the trailer, Cut 25. Imagine one of the highest-paid players in all of sports in America, playing in one of the biggest cities in the country, suddenly, inexplicably, gunned down in the backseat of a car. What would the reaction be today? What would his team do? How would he be memorialized? What significance would his death contain? How could such an event ever be forgotten? It's not imagination. It's history. It's tragedy. It's real. All right, Tom, so that's part of the trailer for this series. And I did not know anything about this incident. It's before my time. I was born in the mid-1980s. I guess this is a story in the 1970s. Who is Wesley, and what story are you going to tell this audience? So I, I so appreciate you having me. Uh, the, this is the only active player in the 150-year history of Major League Baseball ever to be murdered during a season. And Guy, it's, it's just a remarkable player who's largely been forgotten. A career 311 hitter who finished twice in the top 10 in hitting in the American League, including second to Rod Carew, his teammate. He's somebody who had grown up, spent part of his childhood in Gary, Indiana, grew up in Southern California, beat all kinds of odds to make it to the major leagues, and really at the cusp of stardom just as he was beginning to really establish himself as one of the elite hitters in the game. Wrong place, wrong time, in the deadliest city in America at that time, Gary, Indiana, murder capital USA. And he was killed on a Saturday night late in the 1978 season. Something that if it happened now would stop all of sport. And remarkably, his team ended up playing later that same day. Just an, an incredible story. They didn't even miss a single game after their teammate was murdered? Can you believe that? He, he no. was shot on a Saturday night, September 23rd, died early the morning of the 24th. And baseball 
and the Angels and the White Sox played that scheduled game with, with his team in, in shock. I mean, hollowed out a beloved teammate, somebody who uh, has just a remarkable journey to get to the major leagues, the son of a Negro Leagues player with whom he didn't really have a relationship. The, what he went through in the chaos and tumult of the late 1960s on his college campus, which we document. The improbability of his rise, again, right at the edge of stardom. And then, Guy, what happens that results improbably in the man who killed him getting out? Less yeah, than so a that's couple the, of years yep, after he shot. That's the next thing that I want to ask about. Now, the reason that you're calling the podcast Tom Rinaldi Presents Wesley, that was his nickname. What was his full name for sports fans who were saying, this might ring a bell, but I don't quite remember the details? Great way to frame it, Guy. Lyman Wesley Bostock, Jr. Uh, family called him Wesley. Uh, sort of, as you say, his nickname. Called him by his middle name. Same name as his dad, Lyman Bostock, Sr., with whom he didn't have a close relationship. And we're talking about a player killed at 27 years old. A career 311 hitter. Same average as Jackie Robinson. Uh, a player who... Uh, just to give you one example, a player who Rod Carew, George Brett, these Hall of Famers believe that if he had health and had longevity, could have approached the magical mark of 3,000 hits. And remarkably, while after a family dinner back in Gary with his uncle and his cousins, goes to visit a childhood friend, has no idea that she is with her sister, who is estranged from her husband, the husband follows them as they go to drop the two women across town as he returns to Chicago, the hotel, for the final game of the series. Leonard Smith is that husband, pulls up alongside, and fires that shot. That one shot, intended for his wife, Guy, but hits Lyman instead. It sounds like Wesley was a pretty interesting character before this uh, tragic demise he was very involved in social justice in the 1960s, nearly eschewed a career in pro sports to pursue that instead. At one point, this stood out to me. I cannot imagine this happening in this day and age with athletes. He donated a month of his salary to charity because he felt like he didn't deserve it while he was in a hitting slump. Can you imagine? I, I don't think that many athletes, while underperforming, would even consider anything like that, and yet that's something that he did. That is really unusual and pretty interesting to me. Fascinating, right? It's almost impossible to find an analog to that today, anytime, anywhere in any sport. Signs after three seasons with the Twins where he's, where he's paid $20,000 a season, 3% of what the highest paid player is making at the time. He signs one of the biggest contracts in sport. He's one of the most coveted free agents. Free agency is new, by the way, in the sport at the time. The Angels sign in and the pressure of returning home the pressure of the big contract guy gets to him, and he's terrible in the first month. Bats under 150 and goes to Gene Autry, the, the, the singing cowboy who owned the Angels at the time, and said, Mr. Autry, I don't deserve my salary. Autry said, if you hit a home run every game the rest of the season, we're not going to pay you any more, Lyman. Take the money and relax. He accepted the money and donated every dollar to charity, more than $50,000 in 1978. This is a player who had never made more than 20000 for a season, and he donated every dollar because he didn't no, think he earned it. Unfathomable these days, for sure. 
The last thing I'll ask you on this front, Tom, you mentioned this, and it's sort of tantalizing, and it also stirs a little bit of outrage from someone who's totally unfamiliar with these circumstances that you chronicle in this podcast series. The man who intended to kill his estranged wife but accidentally killed this Major League Baseball star, you just said that he got out of prison in fairly short order. How does something like that happen? He never went to prison, incredibly, after the first trial ended in a deadlock jury. The second trial, he was found not guilty guy by reason of insanity. And at that time, in the late 1970s, 1979 in Indiana, the way the law was written and codified, he was sent to a state mental hospital six months after the verdict. He was deemed no longer insane. Wow. And did, was not remanded back into custody, set free back into society, where he returned to Gary and lived six and a half blocks down the same street. You can't make it up, where he had shot Lyman. 14 years ago, guy, that's where we encountered him. The first time we tried to tell this story, I found Leonard Smith, and I feel like I mishandled the encounter badly. And that was one of the drivers to come back and revisit this story, uh, telling people far more about Lyman and his journey, but also revisiting the regret I've carried in how I handled that encounter. Well, I mean, this sounds truly interesting. This story has so much and so many layers to it. And it's just sort of unbelievable that someone who would kill another human being in cold blood, I guess he's behind bars awaiting trial, mistrial, acquittal, brief stint in a mental institution, then back out to live his life. It's pretty wild. And Tom Rinaldi tells the entire story from start to finish in great detail. The first episode dropping today of Tom Rinaldi Presents Wesley. Tom is a Fox Sports reporter. And for many years, he was at ESPN, and he was a staple on College Game Day, a program that I watch regularly in the fall. I'm a big college sports fan. I'm a Northwestern guy. We have some of your former colleagues on the show from time to time. We have Reese Davis here. We've had Herbie here. So it's a real treat, Tom, to have you, A, in the Fox family now, and B, here on the show. I have to ask you about college football because a little bit of a, a seismic tremor just a few weeks ago, UCLA, USC, joining the Big Ten Conference starting in 2024. That's huge for football and, of course, some of the other sports as well. You look at Oklahoma and Texas leaving the Big 12 for the SEC, and there are a lot of college sports fans right now, Tom, chatting, sometimes whispering to each other, is this done? Are we in for a long pause now, or is this just getting started? Will there be further chaos and upheaval? Will there be further consolidation? Are we headed for one or two mega conferences? How do you see this, Tom? I think I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to shed any great light when I give you the three-word mantra that I know you've heard many times. Follow the money. Yep. <laughs> when you consider the amount of money that's at stake in the negotiations and the new media rights deals that come with these conferences, that's why you've seen the movement that you've seen. And when you're able to lure the premium brands. In this great, great sport that we love so much, college football, we share that, certainly, Guy. That's why a lot of indicators suggest we are moving toward the two mega conference, if you will, models. Something that Nick Saban just suggested himself last week 
in his comments on a podcast. Uh, yeah. As you see the SEC, as you see the Big Ten, the question becomes what happens to the Pac-12 and the Big 12 and their long-term viability? It's a legitimate the ACC. question. Yeah, and the ACC, of course. All right, of because one of the parlor games being played by fans everywhere is to sort of start to imagine and envision which teams from those three conferences that you just mentioned might peel off and join the Big Ten or the SEC or the newly constituted Big Ten and SEC. You could imagine, you know, Florida State and Clemson from the ACC maybe saying, okay, sayonara, we're in the SEC now. You hear things about Duke and UNC or UVA. Could they be bound for a growing Big Ten, maybe the Big 20 or beyond? I don't really know where it ends. And just as a fan of the game and something of a traditionalist, not like, you know, stuck in the mud, always upset by all of the changes, I just have this uneasy feeling in the pit of my stomach, Tom, about when you look at this, you look at the the transfer portal and the way those rules have changed uh, to a lesser extent, guys being able to make money off of their likeness and their name, which I think is fair. I think that's basic fairness. But just the the scope of the changes and the speed with which they're happening, I think you're absolutely right that ultimately it comes down to money. But I do wonder, could that be short-sighted? Could we be watching the unraveling of something that we love and care about so much for short-term gain that ultimately, I don't want to use the word destroys, but ultimately fundamentally changes college athletics in a way that I think many fans might not welcome? Is that an overreaction? Is that an overhyped fear on my part? I don't think it is, Guy. I don't. I think that there's a lot of people wondering what, this sport looks like five years from now. And I'll bring up another question, Guy, that I'm sure people talk about often, and that's, of course, playoff expansion. Are you telling me that these same conferences that voted for or against it now, a year later, would have had the same stance and the same feeling, but thought has the pathway into the postseason contracted? Is there a chance for it to expand? Is there a chance that if you're not in the mega conference, you really don't have any path? to get to the postseason and play for a championship, something every program dreams of, right? to play for the biggest bowls, to have an opportunity to be in, let's say it does expand beyond four teams, which seems uh, like an inevitability, again, given the money yep. involved. So there's so much change swirling around the sport, but even with all that, there's something magical about Saturdays in the fall. I love the NFL. I cover it. I'm still fortunate enough to cover college as well, which I love with big noon kickoff, but all of it, it is changing right before our eyes. There's no doubt about it. And I just hope the magic that you just mentioned doesn't get diminished or lost. Because I don't really know where this train ends up, but the train is flying down the tracks. And it seems like people are just sort of panicking in some ways and saying, okay, we've got to do this. Let's jump on board with that. And the destination is unknown. And that's something that I think is concerning to a lot of people who may not have said things were perfect five or ten years ago, but the the rate of change is just so dramatic that folks are you know wondering, okay, what does this game really look like down the line here? And is it really actually an improvement for anyone involved, including the fans? Tom Rinaldi, I have one more question for you on a different subject. Let's get to that right after this short break. It's the Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back with Tom Rinaldi of Fox Sports here on the Guy Benson Show. Tom, last question. I want to come back to Major League Baseball. The 
podcast that we're promoting here is about an MLB star in the 1970s and the tragic events surrounding his death. Fast forwarding to 2022 and MLB, it's the All-Star break, your top level assessment of this season and how you see the back half of the season playing out. Well, I think, well, again, we just spent a little bit of time, Guy, talking about premium brands right, and how they drive the sport. And I think you're seeing that in Major League Baseball this season. When we see the quality up top, when we see the Yankees on an historic pace, when we see their counterpart, the Mets, who are atop their division in the National League, when we see the Dodgers continue to roll the way that they have. I, I, there is a part of us which always wants very competitive pennant races, and I think we're going to have that just, again, to pick the NL East with the Braves and the Mets maybe down to the end. But we also tend to like when it all shakes out, I don't know if you agree, Guy, we like, we love the underdog in America. We always will. But we also like our big and best brands. And I think they're all going to be in the mix. I, I think it's a fascinating season, and we'll see how it shakes out. Also, some, the emergence of some, just some, some great stars and some great players. I think Shohei Otani is amazing. Um, I, I just I wish he'd get the chance to show what he can do on a postseason stage, and that doesn't seem like it's written in the cards for 22. Yeah, not with that team. But as a Yankee fan, I will agree with you on the enjoying the big brands thing. I've been enjoying the brand this year, certainly, after a couple of frustrating seasons. We'll see if it can go the distance, right, and if they can actually keep it together and win when it really counts in October. But the pieces certainly are there, and I have not seen a yet. And I've not seen a Yankees team perform this way since 1998, and we all remember how that season ended. So fingers crossed, at least on my end. Tom Rinaldi of Fox Sports, catch the podcast. Tom Rinaldi presents Wesley. That first episode is out today. Tom, really enjoyed this. I hope we can have you back. Would love it, Guy. Really appreciate it. The podcast, as you say, out everywhere. People get their podcasts, Apple, Spotify. First two episodes out today and successive pairs of episodes over the next three weeks. We hope people give it a listen. We hope they're compelled by this remarkable and overlooked story of Lyman Wesley Bostock. Tom Rinaldi on The Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. It's our happy hour. Earlier in the program, in our first hour, we welcome back to the show KT McFarland, former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Trump, also author of the book Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. We talked about foreign policy. There's a lot going on on that plate right now. Here's part of that conversation with KT McFarland. So he shows up, fist bumps the guy that he said was directly responsible for this murder of a journalist, begging for more oil. And you'd think you could just go and beg in places like Alaska and Texas. Instead, they're punishing that industry here at home for political reasons. And they're going over, as you said, this is your characterization, debasing himself with the people that he has really harshly criticized. And the outcome is at best uncertain of whether or not that actually worked. It it seems just totally incoherent. Yeah, it's. I mean, I used to think that maybe they were just so incompetent they couldn't understand the, the domino effect of all the decisions they were making. I now think it's really. I mean, I think in part it's it's intentional. They want the price of oil and natural gas to be high. They they want everybody to stop driving fossil-based fuels and using fossil-based fuels. They want us somehow to all use electric 
cars, which they think the electricity comes from the wall. They don't realize electricity is generated in power plants that use coal and natural gas. They haven't sort of made that connection yet. But they want the price to be high. They don't want to have to pay the political price for high gasoline prices. But that domino decision early on has created all the international problems we have, and it is absolutely cratering the American economy. So that if you're the average American, you're mad at Joe Biden like five times a day because you're mad when you go to the grocery store because of the inflation. You're mad when you have to fill up your gas tank because it's so high. You're mad every time you drive past a gas station and you see $5 a gallon gas. And you remember, gee, just two years ago, it was like two, you know, one fifty dollars or $2 a gallon. So I think the political price they're paying is quite high and deservedly well, so. They own yeah, it, and, and they did it I would say – and KT, elections have consequences. Policies have consequences. It's not just stuff, you know, happens in a vacuum and it doesn't have real world effects. Of course it does. Now, you mentioned that there seems to be a bit of a gap between what the White House is saying was agreed to on oil versus what the Saudis are saying. There's also a disagreement that has spilled over since Biden left Saudi territory on whether or not he pressed MBS, the crown prince, on the Khashoggi killing. The Saudis are saying that didn't happen. The foreign minister said that he did not hear that happen. Biden is disputing it, saying, no, the Saudis aren't telling the truth. Here's just a quick exchange with a reporter. Cut 22. The Saudi foreign minister says he didn't hear you accuse the crown prince of Khashoggi's murder. Is he telling the truth? No. No, says Biden. I'm not sure we should be taking the Saudi regime's word on anything, but this is a back and forth now, a tit for tat that probably does not bode terribly well if the goal is cooperation. My question for you, KT, drawing on your foreign policy experience going back decades and multiple administrations spanning multiple presidents, what is the correct balance for an American government, an American administration, an American president trying to maintain relations and get things that we need out of regimes that are at best, deeply flawed, deeply imperfect, and in fact, quite authoritarian and abusive. Are there ways to make sure that you don't ignore human rights concerns and press that issue without completely alienating, for example, in this case, Saudi Arabia, who's a bulwark against Iran? I know that the Democrats sort of prefer Iran to the Arab states, which is totally bizarre to me. But this is a dance that foreign policy makers have to perform from time to time. How is that balance best struck? Because it doesn't seem like President Biden really achieved that just here recently. No, I mean, he's losing on all counts. If he really, look, the whole point of, of the Trump administration and the understanding that we had in the Trump administration was that if, if you, if the price of oil is high, Russia, and it has been historically for the last 50 years, every time the price of oil is high, Russia rebuilds its military, it invades its neighbors, and it fights proxy wars around the world. Every time the price of oil is low, the Russians can't afford any of that, so they hunger down at home. We knew that we had this unique opportunity because of American um, energy development, it fract- you know, shale oil, shale gas. And it turned, you know, 10, 10, about 10, 15 years ago, American engineers and scientists they in physicists, they figured out how to get oil and natural gas out of rocks. 
uh, 3D mapping, it's horizontal drilling, it's um, hydraulic fracturing. But in any event, we figured out how to do it. Nobody else in the world figured out how to do it. And it turned out that not only could we do it, but we had the best rocks of anybody in the world. What that meant was that the United States could not just be energy independent. That was great. Being energy independent mean we did not have to be beholden to the Middle East. We did not have to be beholden to the Russians. We had our own energy, our own oil. We could export oil. But it meant also that because we could do it at such a low price compared to all these other countries, we could become energy dominant. That would mean that the United States could replace Russia, could replace Saudi Arabia, could replace Iran, and we would become the world's major hub of, of energy. We could, we could do that at a low energy price. We would make money on it. The Russians would be bankrupt. The Saudis would be bankrupt. We understood that that gave us enormous political leverage. So the question that you've asked about what should the balance be, well, we would have all the leverage. We could be in a very different position. We would not have to beg somebody for something. But that, that trade-off that you make between, you know, do you dance with the devil or do you not? It's the trade-off that, that FDR had to make in World War II. Would he have to cooperate with Stalin to defeat Hitler and Nazi Germany and Nazi Japan, the fascist Japan. It's the same trade-off that we're dealing with right now with China. Do we sell, do we have economic relations with China? Although we know that they have slave labor camps and they're persecuting Muslims in Xinjiang province. Do we do that? Well, once the United States is in a dominant position, economically, technologically, in those ways, we're in a very different position. We don't have to beg. We're in a position of setting certain standards, and I do think the United States is a beacon to the world. But, but once we're in a beholden situation, as we are now with Saudi Arabia, as we are now with China, then we're not in a position to really advance our own moral interests in the world. My full interview with KT McFarland is available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast that's on demand, no charge, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Some exciting news for producer Christine ahead of her birthday, which is tomorrow. We will discuss what we have cooking right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. It is Monday. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is always free every single day on demand. Catch me tonight in a little bit less than one hour on Special Report with Brett Bayer and the panel. That's on Fox News Channel. Well, tomorrow is a very big day here at the Guy Benson Show. It is the birthday of producer Christine Cookie. And I know she said she's turning... Is it 51 or 61? It was something with a one tomorrow, Christine. What age is tomorrow? 41. 41. Okay, allegedly. Uh, So happy birthday in advance. And we probably have some fun things in store tomorrow. But we have to tell the audience where you are going tomorrow after the show. And people who are regular listeners may not be totally surprised by this development. We've hinted at it several times But it became a reality just a few days ago, at least getting confirmation. On a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you for your birthday destination? Absolutely off the charts. I'm going to see the Backstreet Boys tomorrow night. 
I honestly can say, and sorry, Bobby, you have planned some nice birthdays. I'm sure my parents did too, but this is probably going to be the best birthday I've ever had. Wow. That is a big, I mean it, big thing to say. I mean, can you imagine like Judgy Joyce listening to this and all of the birthdays that she planned for you? They gave you a pony, for example, which you rejected. That was not That's my birthday. Way down. That was my yeah, but opinion. I like for the for the purposes of this story, I like to think of it as a birthday gift that you rejected. And now here you are at age forty one almost. You're thinking your best birthday present ever is a Backstreet Boys concert. Is it because you're going to the concert and it's nostalgic for you, or is it because the person furnishing you the tickets is indeed not just a Backstreet Boy, but your favorite Backstreet Boy? I think that probably has a little something to do with it. But just the thought, like I keep picturing, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old Christine right now. And she would just be freaking out. I mean, I am myself Um, and I'm bringing my very best friend. I met her in first grade and she lives in Florida and just so happens she's here. Her and I have seen Backstreet Boys in sync, 98 degrees, O-Town, Britney Spears, Um, Jessica Simpson. You're not bringing Bobby, your husband, to this? No, and I think he's a little upset that I didn't ask him. I assumed it was going to be the two of you. No, I just feel like, what, Dan, does that mean? (laughs) I feel like I would just honestly have a better time with my best friend who, like, this is what we did. We went to all the concerts together. This is yet another yet another best friend on the long list of best friends. You would think the very best friend is the husband who doesn't even get a look, not even an invite, not even an invite. This is new information to me. Yeah. No, oh, no. I, I did ask him yesterday. I was like, Bobby, are you sure you're OK with me taking my best friend? And he's like he was actually he was driving and he goes, yeah, sure. And I go, seriously, he goes, oh. I I would like to go. He goes, I'm actually a fan of the Backstreet Boys. I would like to go, but this is your birthday, and whatever makes you happy, like, you're going to have a great time, so you have to do what you want to do. What would happen if one of Bobby's colleagues gave him Backstreet Boys tickets for his birthday and he didn't even invite you and had one of his bros come instead? That'd be be strange, don't you think? Would that be the end of the marriage? Would you put him in the deep freeze at least for a week? Guy, I am a mature woman, wife, mother, and I feel like if that if that's what Bobby would like, then Bobby should be happy. I would never no. get upset with him over that. You would not speak to him for a week. It just wouldn't happen. If... <laughs> it just right. would never no, would, happen. It would never happen. It would never occur to him to do that. Wow. Okay. So you are going with your friend to the Backstreet Boys. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if these are good seats. I don't know if they were just able to sort of get you guys up in the rafters or wherever it's going to be in New Jersey. They might be amazing seats. I'm not sure. What I do know is that to get your tickets, you have to show up at Will Call to the band Will Call window, which is what Adam and I did when we went to go see the Backstreet Boys in North Carolina. This is where this all came from, by the way. This all originated weeks ago when a listener to this show who's doing promotions for the Backstreet Boys, reached out to me on Instagram and said, hey, if you have any interest in any of these dates, would love to get you into the show. And I guess Brian Luttrell and his wife are Fox viewers and they're fans. 
and they were able to very generously accommodate the one date and location that I could make work, and it was very memorable. We had amazing seats front and center. We got to meet the Latrells backstage, plus one of the other Backstreet Boys, one of the other band members. Afterwards, it was incredible. And because, Christine, you're such a Brian fan and a fan of the band to begin with, I had him make a little video for you, which he very kindly did. He called you Cookie. We played it on the air. I know you watch it every night before you go to bed, probably still. You tweeted it at Cookie's Jar 1988. Is that right? Yes. There you go. People can go watch it if they want. And I did just put in their mind the possibility that you would love to go see them in the New York area. And they were nothing but supportive. They were like, oh, yeah, just let us know. And I did, and they followed through. And it is so cool of them, I think, to have done that. And I was, like, pretty excited to go and see them. This is next level for you. When I told you that it was confirmed and you were in, you literally shrieked over the phone. It was a very (laughs) loud scream. Yeah, I did, didn't I? I, I'm just, I'm I'm telling you, this is probably going to be the best birthday I've ever had. I'm so, so excited to just have a night of singing and dancing and watching them and just reliving my, my uh, younger days. My concern is that when we have a home stretch to talk about all of this and recap and debrief on Wednesday, you might not have a voice to speak. You uh, might like, scream yourself hoarse. We'd like to call that, what is it, Vegas voice or party girl voice? Yeah, that will be you on Wednesday is my prediction. Feeling. If you can't control yourself, which, let's face it, after a few drinks in the presence of the Backstreet Boys, I think that you might get a little excited. But we will nevertheless try to bring that to the audience on Wednesday after the show. And while we're on the subject of concerts, I do want to mention this. Adam and I just got invited by my cousin to a concert upcoming in D.C., and I would not probably have gone out of my way to buy tickets, but when the invite was extended, I didn't even have to think for two seconds. I looked at my calendar, the date was open, and I responded, yes, absolutely, we're in. And not just because he has access to a suite, so there'll be booze and food and all of that, which sounds fun, But this is someone that I have wanted to see perform the spectacle of the show. Would you like to guess who I'm going to go see early next month? The spectacle of the show. Hmm. Pitbull? It is not Pitbull. Wyatt has a guess. I'm going to say Elton John. It is not Elton John, who I've seen twice. I saw him with Billy Joel. And then I saw him on our honeymoon down in Australia. We saw him. It's not Elton John. He does put on a great show. No, no. We will be going at Nationals Park to Lady Gaga. That's a good one. I know. I'm actually really excited. Oh, wow. And I like her music. I She's roughly my age. She's been huge ever since I was in college, basically. And she continues to crank out hits, including... The theme song from the new Top Gun movie that's been on the charts, Hold My Hand, which I really like. Song after song, I think I'm going to be pretty stoked. And I've heard that the costumes that she has are worth astronomical sums of money. They have their own full-time 
bodyguard, like security guard, for the costumes, they're worth that much. So it's going to be spectacle is the right word. It is a spectacle. She's also very talented. She can really sing. And I'm very grateful to my cousin for inviting us. And I'm in. I'm really excited. Early August, Lady Gaga. We will talk about that in the days to come, but more importantly, tomorrow. Christine's birthday. She is seeing the Backstreet Boys in her home state of New Jersey, courtesy of Brian and Leanne Luttrell. And, Christine, happy birthday in advance. We have a few more birthday surprises tomorrow, but I hope you have a great time at the show. Thank you, and thank you for setting this up. Um, I mean, of course, my best friend makes my birthday the best one yet. (laughs) Well, it's my pleasure. It was the least I could do, and it's just, again, so nice of them to go along with all of it and to make it happen. So that's tomorrow. We'll do a birthday edition for Christine tomorrow on the home stretch. We will talk to you then, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time for The Guy Benson Show. I'm on special report coming up in the next hour on FNC. We will see you there. Have a great night. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.